So I want to share with you this morning something that a young man could not preach. Numbers, in fact, I found myself preaching quite a few things in the last few years that really as a young man, I could not do. And I wasn't ready to do it. For many years, I wanted to preach on what I consider the most famous verse of the Bible, which is, what do you think it is? John 3.16. Uh, we wear them on our shirts. Uh, for many years ago, I wore John 3.16 in front of my shirt. People would ask me what it was. It was a witnessing tool. John 3.16 may be the first verse I ever learned in the Bible. And so we would uh, we would use the verse, and, and, and by the grace of God, uh, people would respond to it and be able to do it. Um, I want to talk to you about an experience. Oh, oh I'm going to finish my story there. I blanked out for a second. I saw somebody over here, and then I'm thinking, am I going to get shot here, or what's going to happen? I'm ready to go, though. John 3.16, I tried to preach on for years. And God said, no. I sat down with a piece of paper, and I studied it. I said, okay, I'm going to do John 3.16. And nothing. I mean, nothing. And nothing would come. I'd, I'd write the verse out. I'd do all kinds of different. And I was just... God just kept saying no on the thing. I said, Lord, I mean, I need to preach on John 3.16. Come on, John 3.16. And 20 years later, I am reading a book, a little book my wife bought me, um, uh, Pictures of Gold. Uh, Kathy, where are you at? Help me out here. Well, Apples of Silver and Pictures of Gold, I think it was called. It was an old old publication. It was all yellow. It was, uh, I don't even know where she got the thing. She picks these things up at these uh, sales she goes to. And I'm, I'm reading this book and I, and I go through one of the pages and there's an outline for John 3.16. And the Holy Spirit, like as still small voice as he is, he said, that's it. I took that outline Developed a sermon on John 3.16. Numbers of people got saved. People in Key West got saved off. I had four people get saved when I'm preaching in Key West. Ended up being a youth pastor down there. One of the guys that got saved. God just mightily used that verse. But I had to grow, evidently, spiritually to the point where I was able really to do it. I don't know why God holds you back. But I know that happens. And much of what I find I'm giving as food to Gospel Baptist Church now is things that I could not do as a young man. It does not diminish young guys preaching because tonight Chris Barrows is preaching. Please come. There's nothing going on tonight. <laughs> Chris Barrows got something from God he wants to deliver to you. And the Bible says, despise not your youth. The Bible's old. It's got wisdom in it for whatever age preaches it. But there's been... I had the privilege of preaching and witnessing in the 60s, late 60s, all of the 70s, and then from then on, being actively a soul winner, interested in people being saved during those years. Um, the question I pose to you this morning, uh, I pose because it's being talked about in preachers' conferences and get-togethers by old preachers especially, and here's what they'll say. Who's responsible for fewer salvation decisions? It seems like they'll say 
as a group. Now, I'm not talking about one church or two churches. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of independent Baptist fundamental churches, and not just Baptists. They're seeing less response to the gospel than they used to see. They're seeing fewer decisions for salvation, fewer baptisms than were experienced in the 60s and the 70s if you were alive at that time. And so I want to spend a few minutes with you and try to talk about the whole area, doctrinally, of people making decisions for Christ. And where's it coming from? Who's responsible for it? And so by the grace of God, when you leave here, you'll be much more informed biblically uh, than maybe when you came. John chapter 6, verse 44 is the verse. John chapter 6 and verse 44. Jesus' words, if you have a red-letter Bible, I think Brother uh, Bruce Humber talked about red-letter Bible, having a red-letter. I like red-letter Bibles. You don't have to have one to be right with God. But a red-letter Bible is interesting. Those are what the, uh, are perceived to be the words of Jesus. The, the only danger of a red-letter Bible is you may think those red words are more important than the black-printed words. But you understand the Holy Spirit inspired the whole thing, Right? Now, I even have up here, I have, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it, Jesus' words, Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Now, I only do that to emphasize it, I suppose, in your mind, that our Lord said that himself. It wasn't Paul that said that, though it would have been just as important had Paul said it, or John said it, or Peter said it. I don't want to diminish the importance, for all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we, we find the whole Bible is God-breathed. So really, the red-letter edition may give us a false precept or a concept, uh, actually better, uh, of that being more important. But I say it because you have red-letter edition, and I want, to, want you to know it. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would come with thy blessed Holy Spirit and only teach that which is right Bible truth. Uh, take from the minds and the hearer anything that's not Bible truth and deliver to them, O blessed Holy Spirit, that's what you've heard from the Father. And guide them into all truth this morning, me included. In Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to talk to too many pastors to understand that there, as I said before, seem to be fewer people making decisions for Christ than in recent history, at least. Especially the pastors who worked during the 60s and 70s. Those who were active in soul winning in the 70s and 80s saw a sense of interest in the gospel by the unsaved world, by the unsaved folks, that uh, I no longer have, I, I haven't seen nearly as much as I did in those years. Example would be James Kennedy over across the way. He's, he's gone in heaven now. James Kennedy, Presbyterian. And uh, James started a church over, I believe, West Palm. I think that's where close or somewhere in Miami over there. It's all the same to me. I'm not for sure of the geogra geography over there. But uh, James Kennedy, young guy, wanted to start a church, and he wasn't having much luck, and he, he developed a program called the Evangelism Explosion. How many remember that? Yeah, you old-timers remember that. E.E. -E. 
evangelism explosion had a little pin in everybody in EE war. It was two question marks. If you died today, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? The second question was, if you died and stood before God and they asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would be your reply? And so those two question marks, people will say, what are those two question marks? And that would give you the opportunity to say, well, here's the two questions that you should contemplate. And it would kind of kick the conversation off. But even though that was a great program, and I, I in fact, taught the program for a number of years, it wasn't the program that should receive the credit for the people responding or the people asking the questions on the two-question pin. Um, I ran a bus route back then. I passed out thousands and thousands of tracks daily. I preached on Fort Myers Beach on the picnic table a few times. I put a track in every phone booth in Fort Myers Beach for a whole year. There's 99 of those phone booths. Wait a minute, phone booth. You 20-year-olds are looking at phone booth. Phone booth. Here I go again. They used to have a booth with a phone in it. And you put money in it. Money! A quarter or a dime. You had to make a phone call. Oh, forget it. But I put, it, I put a gospel track in, in them at night. My brother and I would jump in the car and spend one hour going to 99 of those, dropping off a gospel track in each one because people would use them take the gospel track. We used the track by Chick Tracks, Jack Chick. And his track was, This Was Your Life. Uh, what was amazing to me is the people would, in the back of that, it said, if you, if you trusted Christ your Savior, would you please write me? And, and we would put our name and phone number on there. And you cannot believe how many times we received a letter in the mail that said, I picked up one of your tracks, and I've trusted Christ as my personal Savior. And, and then we would be able to contact them if they would leave information. Uh, to help them go on. And so we saw, when I preached on the beach, uh, uh, during spring break, we, we set up, uh, we got a permit from, our, from the Lee County, and we set up shop on one of the picnic tables there, Fort Myers Beach. They got the pier right here, the beach out here. It was full of young people, spring break, and we got permission. We, we set up some loudspeakers, 12-volt battery, and we got up on top of there and began to speak. It was loud. And, and those, uh, I'm just going to guess conservatively, 2,500 plus young people enveloped us all the way. The group went from the, from the pretty table all the way back to the edge of the water, all the way on my left hand and my right hand. I got up. My, my responsibility was to give my testimony of salvation. So I got up there and told them how I'd gotten right with God and at 18 years old and um, some of the other things. Some other people got up and talked. At the end of that, we gave an invitation. As I remember, it was close to 12 or around 12 young people in the midst of all these other peers made their way down to the front and wanted to find out what it, how they could be saved. I'm like, what? What I can tell you is about those late 60s and 70s is the hearts of the unsaved people were strangely tender and responsive to the preaching of the gospel. It wasn't by anything we did. It wasn't by, you know, well, we gave a great testimony, or we did something super, super duper. We passed out tracks then, just like I'm passing out tracks now. We preached, I preach on the beach now. At Easter, I preach for more people at Easter 
uh, on that Sunday than any one Sunday in the whole year. Gather down by the beach in Bonita Beach. This will be our like an 18th time down there. And we have had some people come for salvation. I remember one Easter, a couple ladies came and trusted Christ as Savior. We've had a other few of those services where one a person came and trusted Christ as Savior. Now that doesn't mean there haven't been more, but that's what we know about. But I just have to believe that if I had done that same service in the late 60s and early 70s, in the month of the 70s, that we would have had dozens of people come and respond to the gospel. So what has changed since from then to now? Uh, well, back then people would come to my, when I, when I became pastor here in 1992 and before that, People literally, at the beginning of the 90s, by the way, this lasted all the way up into the early 90s, I would have people come by the church, see the sign, come on in and say, is the preacher in? I was here in our first year or two of the church here because I had no secretary. I was everything. And so I'd say, sure, I'm here. And uh, they say, I need to talk to you. Uh, I want to be saved. Well, man, I don't have to do much. I just show them the gospel. I'd have a, an accountant come by and say, I've, I've examined the gospel carefully, and I need to be saved. According to that book, I'm not saved. And I'd lead him to Christ. And it was amazing at what was going on. It was something outside of what I was doing. It was not something coming from me. It was not some sort of talent I had. It was something coming from outside. One time here at Gospel, we baptized folks 25 Sundays in a row. We had a baptism. We saw the First Steps program, which is our discipleship program, full with 30, 35 people in it. Now, it's not been that way for, for the last 10 or so years, maybe longer. But it's not just Gospel Baptists that there is noticing a change. We're noticing a change across America. Maybe even further, maybe worldwide, I don't know, but I know America a little bit from the pastors that I know. So what has changed? And if I may ask this, this question, who's responsible for the lessening of the reaction to the gospel when it's preached? Now, I've been to pastors' conferences where a preacher will get up there and he'll skin us. Preacher, you know what I'm talking about? He'll skin you, brother. He'll say, it's you that have fallen away. It's you that have quit being active and soul winning like you used to be. It's you that have quit going door to door. And they want to they wanna just beat up the sower. And they do a good job of it. I mean, you come out of there bloody, bloody nose, eye black, feeling like you're just a bum. And of course, that immediately throws me back to the Bible. What does the Bible say about all this? And that's what I want to share with you. Let me ask the first question. First, does man have a true free will? Can he really choose to accept or reject the gospel? Does whosoever mean what it says? Is the open invitation of the gospel in the New Testament, really mocking folks? Is it true? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. 
John 7, 37 says, In the last days, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. 1 Timothy 4, 10, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So that verse, if there was no other verse in the Bible, would make a very close distinction between those that believe and those that don't. But he's the Savior of both. He is the Savior. His blood was enough to forgive every sin committed by every person that's ever going to be held accountable to God. Do you believe it? This is important. This is important. In John 3.15, where he says, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, is whosoever some sort of a secret code, and it doesn't really mean whosoever. Whosoever don't mean whosoever. Or is, by, or is God really being forthright and using the right words that mean the right things that say the right thing? Is God mocking us when we have an open invitation to the gospel? I say no, God forbid no. I believe, biblically, after all these years of studying the Bible, that we absolutely have a free choice to accept or to reject the gospel. This morning, if you're here and the sound of my voice, whether it be over the internet or wherever this goes or here, you have a choice. If you have not trusted Christ your personal Savior, you have not settled the sin question, as people call it, then you have a choice this morning, and maybe you've ex exercised this choice over and over again of saying yes to God or no to God when he comes by your house. And he will, because God touches everyone. I don't have time to prove this, but I can give you a highlight in John 1.9. He says, that was the true light, speaking of Jesus, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. How many men? Every man. How many men? Every man. Is God mocking us? Is this some sort of a secret coded wording that he really doesn't mean every man, but it just means those that he chose before the foundation of the world? Or what, what is this? What is this? So let me give you some examples to consider. Peter preached the first two sermons of the early church. Most, many of you know the book of Acts, know that. Peter. If you look in the New Testament, it was always Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. People say, well, what if I'd have sure hated to be John. I'd always be mentioned third. I'll tell you, I'd just like to be in that list. Peter, James, and John. What about the other nine guys? They didn't, never got called to the Mount of Transfiguration. They didn't get called to the inner circle. They just called the inner circle. They didn't get called to that. Today, uh, people would call Jesus a racist, a bigot. A chauvinist pig. But he's not. Peter preached the first two sermons. Now, in these two sermons, the Bible tells us there are some 8,000 people got saved. I don't know about you, but 8,000 people, no microphone, no microphone, no amplification, outside, 8,000 people respond to the gospel. They didn't have an upper room but 120 people. How in the world did they deal with that whole thing? 
That's just a lot of people to talk to about being saved. Well, they got saved in groups. Because the Holy Spirit was convicting, as he is today, but, but the people of Peter's day seemed to have a tender heart to the preaching of the gospel. In other words, Peter preached a very confrontational sermon. Now, you know, if you've been around in church circles, it is literally, there are schools that try to teach preachers not to preach confrontationally. That means do not talk about sin. It makes people uncomfortable. That's the PC culture. You know PC, right? Politically correct. Don't ever say anything that offends anyone in any direction. You won't be able to talk. Let me read it to you. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 23. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God. This is part of his sermon. Among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye, I like the King James because ye is different than you. Ye means y'all. And you're in the South, that makes sense. Y'all have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, I think that's pretty confrontational. I mean, he didn't mince any words about it. You, not, not somebody around you, you guys killed, well, as it says later, the prince of life. In verse 36, therefore, all the, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, this same Jesus, by the way, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. In Acts chapter 3, his next sermon, verse 14, 15, he says, and ye denied the Holy One oh, and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. That was Barabbas. And killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised up from the dead, wherefore we are witnesses. Now that's confrontational preaching, man. You denied your, your Messiah, the Holy One that was to come. You asked for Barabbas, which was a robber and a murderer, to be released in his place. And you, very, you, you literally have killed the prince of life. What happened? The Bible said they were smitten in their heart. What must we do? What do we, what do we need to do? Well, it tells them repent. Twice, both, both invitations were repent and believe. Repent and believe in Christ. And 3,000 got saved. 5,000 got saved in those two sermons. Now, uh, was that due to the expertise of the message? The, first, let me try to uh, give you a picture of who Peter was. Peter was probably one of the older or oldest of the 12 apostles. And he was, the, he was a hardcore outdoor fisherman. He wasn't big on going to school. He was real big on fishing. For what do you have to know if you are a full-time, for the rest of your life, in business, fisherman? You don't need to know calculus. You didn't, don't need to know algebra. You don't need to know, you do need to know how to count. Fishermen, all oh, they need to know how to count, brother. And they need to know how to measure, right? I don't know how to measure. It was this big. 
I just got to say, from Peter's two books that God allowed him to write in the New Testament, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, his, his language is, for people that are, that are good in Greek, New Testament Greek, Koine Greek, they're abhorred by the language that Peter uses. Lang he made words up. I mean, he just made stuff up because his expertise was not language. And you know, that's exactly what D.L. Moody was. D.L. Moody was horrible in English. He, he slaughtered the king's English. Why, well, he'd have come here and he'd have ain't done, did that. And you people that are so educated would have went, oh. God will never do anything through that man. He doesn't have his I's dotted and his T's crossed. He doesn't even know the difference between a, a, a gerund or a, a run-on sentence or a preposition. What's a preposition? I'd hate to ask this group. Noah. Bible says Noah preached of righteousness. He preached probably 120 years. And there were only eight converted under his whole preaching ministry. Now, in most fundamental independent Baptist circles, if you preached 120 years, first of all, nobody lived that long. But if you did, you'd be considered somewhat of a failure. Your fellow sweet brethren in the ministry would probably say to themselves, but not in front of you, something must be wrong with him. He must have a real glitch person in his personality or in his method of preaching, I bet he wasn't an expositional preacher. You mean like D.L. Moody? Like Bob Jones Sr.? Like Gypsy Smith? We're all topical preachers. You know what I've learned? It's not the messenger. It's the message. And so we look at Noah and we go, whoa, we throw our hands up. Uh, we look at Jonah. Jonah. Jonah and the big fish or whale, as the Bible calls it, was okay. Swallowed, spit up on shore, went into the, one of the capital cities of the day, Assyria, Nineveh, preached, uh, it was about a three-day walk, I guess. He preached uh, an eight-word sermon. Oh, you'd be, on Super Bowl night, people love that. Eight-word sermon. Eight-word sermon. An eight-word sermon. That's almost as short as Chris Barrows did. Chris, one time, I'm, I'm on vacation. I heard back at Chris preached 17 minutes, Brother Thomas. 17 minutes. I told my wife he's trying to take over. <laughs> he's going to take the whole thing over. They'll vote, they'll vote me out in a heartbeat. We got a spiritual group here at the gospel. And so, the boy preached eight, eight, eight words. You're going to be killed, all of you, you know. Forty days. So the whole city repented. Assyria was amazing. It's, it's, been, it's been recorded in history as the greatest revival ever recorded. No, there's no recorded revival greater than the revival under Nineveh, under Jonah. A guy that didn't want to be there. A guy that tried to get away. A guy that reluctantly was put back in the saddle. A guy that preached an eight-word sermon. And a guy that when they got right was mad about it. 
So who's responsible for that kind of revival? Well, I don't think Peter's results were, were due to his expertise and expositional interpolation of the Bible. Or I don't think the results of Noah was due to his poor preaching. I do not believe the results of Jonah was due to his expert ability to preach, or if I may say good attitude. God obviously gave the results. That men simply did, these men that I mentioned, and others that preach, and all the, all the people that preach, just simply do what is their duty to do. Jesus says, when you think of yourself, call yourself an unprofitable servant. Don't call yourself a profitable servant. Say, call yourself an unprofitable servant because you did just what is your duty to do after you got born again. All my sins have been forgiven. They've been put in the Lamb's book of life. Brother, I'm doing what I do. Never will I repay God. I'm doing just the least that my duty would require me to do would be to serve God. Let me give you the key verse. Now, if you didn't remember anything when I said... Remember this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 says this, real short verse. Paul says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. 1 Corinthians 1.29 says, there's no flesh of glory in his presence. No matter what results a preacher may get or a church may get, Ultimately, there's going to be nobody stand before God, beat their chest, and say, boy, we did a great job. What we're going to say is, God, you're a great God. You're a great, mighty God. Glory, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. That's what we're going to say. I remember my mom and dad, and I must hurry, my mom and dad uh, were heathen. My mom and dad had no religious background. Neither, neither my mother nor my dad had any religious background. None. They were heathen. Didn't go to church. My dad never heard anything about Jesus until he went to Cecil B. DeMille, a silent movie. I think it was a silent movie about Easter. And he watched it with his mother, but wondered why they hung that guy up on the cross. Wondered why they did that. That's how out of it he was. He goes to World War II, serves the Marine Corps, uh, uh, fourth wave on Saipan, first wave on Tinian, Okinawa, comes home. Hitchhikes from... California, all the way over back to Elkhart, Indiana, uh, starts a floor covering business, uh, has three beautiful children, <laughs> and ends up 33 years old, living in a little house he paid six grand for. And he says, life's got to be big. It's got to be more than this. It's got to be more than just eating, working, living and dying, having a family. It's got to be bigger than this. He says, there's a little church down the road there. I'm going to take the boys to. My mom said, I ain't going. I'm not going to help you. So she didn't. So he picks the three, dresses the three boys. I'm two years old. Two years old. He takes me down there and with my brothers, and he listens to the sermon, goes home. Three times that happened. The third time he comes up and tells the preacher, I would like you to come by Thursday night and visit. So Thursday night, uh, Harold Hofflinger, which was on the, 10 most wanted. He was a bank robber, had been in jail, got saved in jail, and became a preacher. <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
And so Harold Hofflinger went over to the house, and in a gruff, Harold Hofflinger is kind of a gruff guy, by the way, kind of hard, gruff guy. And he told him, if you don't get saved, you're going to hell. Here's the gospel. Explain the gospel. Simple, straightforward. My mom, first time my mother ever heard it. He said, would you like to trust Christ as your Savior right now? And they said, both of them, we would. They got saved. Was that Harold Hofflinger's credit? Or was that the Holy Spirit and the tenderness of the heart of my mom and dad towards the gospel? No prior witness, no visitation, just emptiness. God was drawing. We are witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. And that's what we are. You and I, big, small, talented, not talented, can speak, can't speak, educated, not educated. As born-again believers, we all have the same obligation. We have the same debt that we're to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Don't take exceptions. Don't hold back. Be generous with the gospel. We're going to give you a whole pouch of gospel seed, which is the word of God, and you're going to walk through this world, and you're going to be going like this. Don't be stingy on the seed. The seed's been given to you. It's the word of God. Get out there and throw that stuff around. Throw it down in the bus, mister. Throw it around the door to door. Throw it around the track, mister. Throw it around the mission board. Throw it around, throw it around, throw it around because the seed's going to land on four different kinds of soil. It's going to land on, on the stony ground and it's going to get choked out. Not much sure. It's going to land on the wayside. It's hard-hearted ground and they're not going to respond to it. It's going to land in some ground and the cares of this world and everything going to choke it out where there's no fruit. But it's going to land, a quarter of it is going to land on some good ground. And that good ground is the heart, and they're going to say, I want it, like my mom and dad did, like you folks did, like you, many of you people did. You're going to say, I want it. And you're going to get saved and born in the family of God. When it says, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature, never are the results talked about. We are simply sowers. And it's the word that gets the credit. I think of a farmer. Farmer don't get credit for growing a crop. Really? I mean, if you're a farmer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You do prepare the soil. You do put the fertilizer in the soil. You roll it over three times to kill all the weeds. Then you throw the fertilizer in the soil. Then you take your seed day, and when it's the right time of the year, you take your seed out there and you plant the seed. You Hopefully there's an irrigation system, but if not, you pray that God would rain. But if you get the right kind of water and the right kind of temperature, the seed germinates. Now, the farmer can do all kinds of stuff, but he cannot make the seed germinate. And you and I are that farmer. We're out here throwing the seed around. We're one, of course, we want to have a... Obviously, we got air conditioned so you're comfortable and come in. We're, prepping, we're prepping the place. We're making it, uh, we're making it uh, conducive for growth. We want to do that. We're farmers. But we understand as farmers that it's God that gives the increase to it all. So what I'm, I'm saying is we got to quit beating up the sower because some of the seed goes on hard ground. I can't explain. I can't explain it all. I know from ages to ages the ground seems to have changed in some degree. 
Some ground is, is hard. Noah's day. Noah's ground was very, very, very... Would you say that? Noah's ground was pretty hard. Eight people get saved. Would you say Jonah's ground was very, very, very tender? And those folks were ready? Yeah. And I don't know where we're at here in 2020. I don't know. I know the ground seems to be a little harder than it was in the 60s and 70s, maybe the 80s. But that doesn't change me. I'm the sower. I'm just going to keep sowing. I have planted Apollos' water, but God gives the increase. I'm not going to beat up the sower for not having results or beat up a missionary for not having results because the missionary, if he goes and preaches the gospel, he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. Some missionaries get big results. Don Sis went over to Japan, which is now considered extremely hard ground area. He went over to Japan, and God just blew that thing out, started a beautiful church there, a big old church in Japan. I just finished his life book. And some of them other missionaries went over there for, I talked to missionaries, said they'd been there for 20 years, seeing four people trust Christ. How long would you last with four people? But you know what? That missionary believed that what he was doing was right. And whether we in America kind of spoiled by results, that's pragmatism has crept in our thinking. But God's more principle-based. He's not pragmatic. No, his pragmatism is if it works, it has merit. If it works, it has value. God's not that way. God says, do right till the stars fall. Just do what I tell you to do. And you let the results go stick with me. You let me take care of where the ground, where the seed fall. I mean, just throw the seed everywhere you can. Let me try to encourage you this morning. You, you, you say, well, I don't go door to door because I don't see people getting saved like I used to. Get back to going door to door. You say, I don't know if it does any good bringing these kids in. I've had people tell me, I've brought kids in. I have never seen any of them saved. Brother, if I did my whole life and not one of them got saved, it's not my fault. Is it? But it is my fault if I don't go out and get them. It is my fault if I don't go out in the neighborhoods and the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. It's my fault if I don't do that. I will be held accountable for not getting out, getting amongst them, as one of our people here said. I got to get amongst them. And we are to blame if we don't put forth effort and if we don't put forth energy, and if we don't put forth everything and in prayer and begging God to come and, and seeing fruit, that is our fault. But once we do all that, it's God that gives the increase. You got it? You got it? You may hear preachers get up there and try to whoop on you, but if you're sowing honestly before God, you're doing what God wants you to do. Of course you're supposed to be right with God. Of course there's other things involved in it. But God will give the increase. But he will not violate the heart of man. He won't violate that free will. And I know there's a generation, I preach a sermon called the lost generation. I know that sometimes in the case of Noah where a whole generation of people said no. Wow. You know, that even surprised God. He said, repent of me that I've made man. Repent of me. It seemed like it surprised God. These people don't want me. Wow. And folks, don't you be part of that group. Don't you be part of that group. You go to Jesus Christ and you 
Trust Him as your Savior. Put your faith in Him. You'll be glad you did. And God will come. Father, help us this morning. May the Spirit of God explain this as I could not. I pray that the Word of God would go forth as it always does, as you've said it would. And it'll do that which you send it forth to do. It'll accomplish the purpose that you have for it. I pray this morning you'd comfort in some degree the people that are out there sowing. And I pray in some degree that you'd convict the folks that have laid back and said, well, well, who's going to be lost is going to be lost. Who's going to be saved is going to be saved. So I guess I really don't need to do anything. That thinking is not biblical. That's not what book says. Let us sow. Let us be instant in season when things are going great and everybody's responding. We got baptisms every week. And let's sow out of season when we're not getting movement. We're not seeing people saved necessarily, visibly at least. We're not maybe seeing baptism. We just keep sowing. Good in season, out of season. Good, bad. We just keep sowing. Because we know that you'll give the increase. We know that there'll be fruit from the seed. And we sow in faith. Help us, Father. There could be someone here this morning without Christ, their personal Savior. May they take this opportunity. Invitation is not over when music stops. They take this opportunity to see myself, Brother Chris, Brother Thomas, Brother Steve, and say, I'd like to talk to somebody about Jesus and being saved. We have ladies that will deal with ladies, and it'll be in the back in a room, quietly, privately. We'd love to be able to just chat with you about your soul. You come. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand again. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.